All right, well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the house. A little, a little clap. We're going to get more uh, chances to honor and love you guys in a little bit. Um, but I do want to acknowledge right off the bat that I am aware of how challenging today can be for some of us. So some of us have um, lost our mothers. Some of us have strained or difficult relationships with our mothers. Um, for some of us who are trying to be mothers and aren't able to be mothers yet, some of us as mothers might have hard and difficult relationships with our children. And so Mother's Day is not just a harmless hallmark holiday. It can be very painful uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so if this is you just want to encourage you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Um, I want to encourage you to whatever comes up to the surface, whatever bubbles up, that you'd be able to give it to the Lord this morning. Um, and I want to encourage you to be transparent and honest with one another. And we talked all last week about how Christians ask for prayer from other brothers and sisters. So I hope that as you uh, feel the hardness of today, that you'd be able to share that burden with some of your brothers and sisters. So you don't have to be super happy today. You don't have to pretend like everything is okay. So I want to encourage you um, to be able to grow spiritually um, and, and, and mature as, as you are honest with yourself, uh, as you're honest with the Lord, and as you're honest with your brothers and sisters. And with that being said, my hope is that today we can honor the mothers who are in the room with us today as we uh, gain an appreciation uh, for, for moms outside of the room as well. And I hope that this happens as we look at God's Word together uh, and we see the very unique and vital role of, honestly, all women in God's church so with that, let me just pray one more time before we jump into the text together. Holy Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity this morning to gather as your sons and daughters under your powerful and your perfect word, God. We confess that we, um, in various ways, have fallen short this week, and we acknowledge that no one has come here this morning perfect but all of us are here as needy, broken, wavering children in need of your grace and your mercy. So God, we thank you. We thank you for the parents in our lives, if not biological, then adoptive, and if not adoptive, then spiritual. We thank you that you have placed people in our lives to help raise us and love us, and not just emotionally or physically, but spiritually. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling today, Pray that your word would bring supernatural comfort um, to those who are mourning. And we pray that you would draw near to the brokenhearted. Father, we just pray that you would give us a deeper understanding of the importance of motherhood in your kingdom and help us see the beauty and the value of our sisters in Christ and, and help us to treasure them accordingly. So God, please open our eyes. Please unblock our ears. Please soften our hearts. Give us a focus and a patience today. God, I pray that you'd bless my words and my thoughts for your glory and the fruit and benefit of your flock. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know Paul is really getting to the end of his letters when you start seeing lists of names, and that's what we have here in the first half of Romans 16. Here's a breakdown of these 16 verses. So at the very beginning in verses 1 and 2, you get a commendation of this woman named Phoebe, who we're going to talk about. In verses 3 through 16, that big chunk in the middle, you get a bunch of personal shout-outs to people in the church. And then finally, in the very last verse, in verse 17 there, you have an appeal um, to further unity in the church. Now, lists of names can 
sometimes be tricky when we come across them in Scripture. I think if we can be honest with one another, these sections of the Bible don't get quite as much attention, maybe in our Bible studies, as, as other parts of Scripture as we're reading through the Bible. But there is gold here, Mercy House. And that's why we never skip lists as we're preaching through these books. It might take a little bit of extra time and energy to extract that gold, but God hasn't just revealed himself and, and spoken in just the very exciting and interesting parts of Scripture. 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. So that's why we're preaching through a list of names. And with that, this is what I, I want to do this morning. I, I want to give you one general observation that this text reveals about the early church, and then four specific observations about women that this text reveals in the early church. And we'll see what those mean for us today. So first, the general observation about the early church and what that means for us. And this observation is that the church is made up of lots of people. I know, that's a very straightforward observation, but it's important. The church is made up of lots of people. Paul mentions 26 individuals in these verses. 24 of those are by name. Now, these aren't like mega church numbers, uh, but it's also not an exhaustive list of every single Christian in Rome. This list of faithful Christians doing church together in the heart of Rome, uh, in the heart of the Roman Empire, is incredibly significant. And not necessarily because of just who's on the list, which is what we're going to get to in a minute, but we see here uh, that God and His promise and His plan to bless all nations— which was made all the way back in Genesis, is actually finally coming to fruition. Uh, many of us have grown up knowing a lot of other Christians around us, maybe being in large groups and communities of Christians. So we, not, we might not realize how significant this snapshot of the early church in Rome is. But this list represents something that God's people had been, quite honestly, a little bit confused about and waiting for for over 1,400 years. Here's what I mean. God makes three specific promises to Abraham, which you can read about in Genesis 12 through 17. The first one is that God would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. The second is that he would give them the land of Canaan for them to all live in. And the third is that he would bless all the nations through them. And it doesn't take very long for God to fulfill those first two promises. So in Genesis 47, when Joseph is gathering all of his brothers together and all of their families together to himself in Egypt, we read, this is Genesis 47, verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. By the time of Jacob's death in Genesis 49, this is just two chapters later, we have all tribes, uh, 12 tribes of Israel being blessed. They're being established by their father Jacob. And pretty soon after this, at the very beginning of Exodus, we read, this is Exodus 1, verses 5 through 7, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when a family gets upgraded to a nation, 
But I'm pretty sure when your family multiplies and grows exceedingly strong and the land is filled with all of you, like you're on your way to becoming a nation. So then after the book of Exodus, which if you don't remember, Exodus chronicles the, uh, God rescuing his people from Egypt who originally enslaved them because they were so afraid that they were becoming so numerous and so powerful. Um, he's doing this through the leadership of Moses. And then you have Moses' successor, Joshua, who would lead them into the promised land of Canaan. So in a relatively short time, in, in Bible time, it's, it's not very long, you have God fulfilling his promise to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and to give them the promised land of Canaan. But what about God's third promise there of blessing all nations through Abraham's descendants? At the end of the book of Joshua, you have this like incredible anticipation for that final promise to finally be fulfilled. Like Israel is vast in number. They, they get established in their beautiful promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey, and they're ready to bless the nations, except that it never happens. It never happens. Once they're in Canaan, the book of Judges chronicles the miserable failures of God's people to follow God and be faithful to him. They couldn't even be a blessing to themselves by remaining obedient, let alone being a blessing to the whole world around them. And so that third promise is pending for generations and generations. This is one of the core messianic promises that God's people are waiting for in this future Savior, a descendant of Abraham who would bless the nations. Now, for us who are Christians on this side of the cross, we know that this is fulfilled in Christ. How do we know this? Well, because now it's in Christ that people are able to be justified. They're able to be made right with God. It's not through their blood lineage. It's not through works of the law or trying to be good people, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which means that it's not just blood-born Jews and descendants of Abraham who are saved, but anyone who hears the gospel, who believes in Christ and puts their trust in Christ, they are saved by Christ. This is why Paul is going bonkers evangelizing. We talked about this a little last week. That's why, as we saw, he's making it his mission to go into places that have never heard about Jesus so that he can offer this good news of salvation to everyone and bless them. So imagine at the height of COVID, you found in your bedroom, somehow you're sitting there thinking, you're like, I found the cure to COVID. And you're, and, and you're sitting there, and I'm sorry, that sneezed through me off. <laughs> you find the cure to COVID, and you don't need to administer a shot. You don't need to give anyone a vaccination card. You could somehow just tell them about it. And if they believed you, they would be cured. They would be healed. They would be permanently inoculated. If that were the reality, imagine how ferociously you would go and try to tell as many people as you could about this good news. This is the good news of the gospel. This is how to understand it. The gospel is the good news of salvation for all people. Not just those who are ethnically Jewish, but Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, not Jewish as well. And the fact that there is a list like this, which includes Gentiles, non-Jews, people outside of the ethnic family of God being invited into it, they're being gathered together as recipients of God's grace through the gospel, people who are being saved and transformed and are living new lives in Christ. Because all of that is happening, it means that God has finally fulfilled that third promise. He has blessed the nations through his son 
Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.8, Paul says this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. That is incredible. Abraham likely had no idea what God meant when God made that promise to him. It was so much bigger than Abraham who just wanted a child. (laughs) But here God is, a master of beautiful storytelling and story writing. He's planting this huge Easter egg. It's kind of putting the end scene right in the beginning of some of the earliest scenes of the Bible narrative. And so the list of people in Romans, it shows us that God has fulfilled his promise to bless the nations through Jesus, who is a direct descendant of Abraham. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, it shows us that God is a promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. He always does what he says, and he's faithful to accomplish what he intends. There's never any lying. There's never any wavering. There's never any exaggeration on God's part. The evidence of his faithfulness is not just in the list at the end of Romans here, but it's seen every time that we as a body of believers gather together. In the same way that the people mentioned in these verses in Romans 16 are incredibly diverse, both in their ethnic and cultural heritage, but also in their occupations and their giftings and their stations of life. So we also see the same diversity here today in this building. Mercy House, have you ever considered that the mere existence of God's church is a glaring reminder that God is faithful? Let me remind you, we are not here today because we share similar hobbies or we get along nicely with one another. I'll be honest, I think if it wasn't for Christ, many of us wouldn't even really be talking to each other. We're all here because God promised to make a nation of people for himself, a priestly kingdom of holy sons and daughters, and he did it, and he's doing it through his son. We, representing all nations and all tribes, have received redemption and adoption and infinite blessing through Christ. And then, if we've received Christ, we are then commissioned to go and to bring Christ so that through us, as adopted descendants of Abraham and sons and daughters of God, we may bless the nations. This is something that we always get to do at the, at, during the springtime. Is a lot of people, are, we're sending them out back home, which is back to the nations. We're going to bless the nations as followers of Christ. This is what this list of names in Romans means theologically. And this is what we should remember each time we step into the house of the Lord, that God is faithful, that he has built this house, that he has brought us together, and he will hold all of us fast. The church lasted from uh, 50 AD-ish all the way until now, and it's going to last until now, until Christ returns. Maybe not in the form of this building and this name of Mercy House, but his church will remain. Now, that is one general observation as we see this list as a whole. And I want to shift your focus to four more specific observations we can make focusing on women as we read this list. So, are there observations that we can make about men as we read this list? Absolutely. Are there observations we can make that have nothing to do with gender? Yes. But you can go a lot of places with this text, but as I've been praying about it this past 
week, I want to take this somewhat rare opportunity to specifically honor our sisters here today. So here is the first of the four specific observations about women that I see in this text. Number one, women play a vital role in the church. Women play a vital role in the church. Ten out of the 26 people who are greeted by Paul are women. You've got Phoebe in verse 1. You've got Priscilla in verse 3. You've got Mary in verse 6. You've got Junia in verse 7. You've got the twin sisters. They think they're twins. Tryphena and Tryphosa in verse 12. And then also in verse 12, you have Persis. You have Rufus's mother in verse 13. You have Julia in verse 15. You have Nereus's sister mentioned in verse 15 as well. And this doesn't include the women who are unnamed, but most likely a part of the house churches and families which Paul greets as well. Now, maybe some of us don't see this as a huge revelation, but I want to point out that the diversity of gender within our church today is not a modern progressive advancement. Right from the very beginning of the church, God has intended his daughters to be an integral part of the unfolding of his beautiful story of redemption. So even at the climax of the redemptive story, let's not forget that it was women who were the last at the cross as Jesus died and then the first to arrive at the tomb at his resurrection. As we read the Bible, we see God giving different and unique roles to men and to women. And those roles and those responsibilities are meant to complement one another. They are never an indicator of God's valuing of one gender over another. We see, judging by this list, that women were not just bystanders. Paul's greetings are not impersonal head nods like, hey, yeah, you, no. That's not what we see here. They're filled with appreciation with respect, with affection for these sisters in Christ. Four of them, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, are praised as being, quote, hard workers who labored and toiled for the church. You see this in verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, greet those workers, that, the phrasing there is hard toilers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, and then greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Paul hustled. Saying that he worked hard himself would be an understatement. I just want to show you a snippet in the day of the life of Paul. Look at Acts chapter 14. This should be on your screen starting in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So pause right there. Stoning was a means of execution. It was very basic, what they would do is when someone was uh, given the order to be executed, people, the community would grab rocks from the ground and they would hurl them at this individual until they died. So that's what a stoning is. So they do this to Paul. They're throwing giant rocks at his head. He collapses on the ground. They assume he's dead. They drag him to the gates. Then look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on, to, uh, on, went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. This is where he originally was. And to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When a guy like Paul commends you for working hard, 
That says something about you. That is high praise. These women were not bystanders. They were not props. They were lionesses for the kingdom of God and his church. Also, a relevant side note, Paul never attaches this descriptor of being a hard worker to any of the men in this greeting. So I don't think that means that the men were lazy, but I do think it means that these women were particularly ferocious for Jesus. Sisters, I want to speak to you personally. You have been made by God to serve Christ and his church with zeal and with tenacity. When you are living out your calling and using the gifts that God has given you in reliance of the Holy Spirit and to the service of our great King Jesus, you are a force that Satan does not want to reckon with. I know we all come from different cultural backgrounds and different church backgrounds, so I don't know exactly what you've been told, but you women are not dainty. You are not weak. You are not damsels in distress and needing of saving from other men. Like women of God in the Bible are warriors. Just look at this tiny little snapshot of your spiritual lineage in this little house church in Rome to remember how fierce women of God are. Some other women that are mentioned here, Priscilla is a great example. In verse 3, she wasn't just a nominal Christian when it was convenient for her. She is praised for risking her life for Paul. Then you've got Junia in verse 7. She was in prison with Paul. So I can't tell you from experience or anything, but I suspect that first century prison wasn't a cakewalk. She survived doing hard time alongside Paul while loving Jesus and serving the church. Women played a vital role in the church at Rome. And women play a vital role here today in the church. How? Well, here are three other observations specific to women that I want to point out in this text. In addition to the fact that women play a vital role in the church, we see by looking at these verses that single women play a vital role in the church, married women play a vital role in the church, and mothers play a vital role in the church. So first, single women. Single women play a vital role in the church. Look at the first couple of verses here in chapter 16. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. It's widely believed that Phoebe is the woman whom Paul has entrusted to deliver this letter to the Romans. He's taking the time here to commend and honor Phoebe, and he presents her to the Roman church and tells them to welcome her as a sister and to give her everything that she needs. It is safe to assume that she is single or uh, or a widow, um, simply because it's highly unlikely that she would have traveled alone if she were married. And if she wasn't alone, then Paul would have probably included her husband in that greeting as well, which is what he does for other married couples, which we're going to see in a minute. I was speaking with someone from our church this week, and, and they were communicating. She was communicating her frustration and her hurt at this idea that the people in our family had repeatedly told her through the years and that she had recently just heard, and that is this. They are saying to her that 
as a woman, life doesn't really start until you are married and have children. I don't think this young woman is the only one of us to have heard this sentiment be communicated, whether that's explicitly or implicitly by family, by friends, by certain cultures, even in a church from the pulpit. And I want to recognize how frustrating and hurtful that must be to hear. But I also want to recognize how wrong that is. Sisters, your life does not start when you get married and have children. Your life starts when Christ raised you from your spiritual deadness and you begin living new life in him. So try telling Phoebe that her life doesn't start until she gets married and has children. Try telling that to Esther. Try telling that to Rahab. Try telling that to Mary Magdalene or Tabitha or Martha or Lydia or any of the godly faith women who played Bible-worthy roles in God's grand narrative of redemption when they were, childless, when they were single and childless, that their life did not begin until they got married and had children. Yeah, Ruth found her Boaz, and she contributed to the messianic lineage to Christ with her child Obed, but her glory and, 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 and that righteous beauty and faithfulness of her being a daughter of God began well before her wedding day. If you are a single woman, God is calling you to leverage what you have, your time and your freedom to serve him, to serve others, and to build his church. There are ways that you can serve right now as a single woman that married women and mothers cannot, at least not anywhere near the same capacity. I'm not going to pretend I know how difficult it can be to be a single woman waiting, desiring for the companionship and fellowship of a husband. That is a good thing to desire. But do not lose out on this beautiful season with the Lord that's here and now as you focus on and long for the season that might come. The women I mentioned, including Phoebe, did not. And they didn't play background minor roles either. They were used to advance God's story, his purposes, his kingdom with their faithfulness to him. Phoebe is delivering God's word to the Roman church. Paul says that she is a servant of the church. The word servant there is diakonos which means uh, servant, but it can also be translated uh, as deacon. And you see this in 1 Timothy 3, where it's very clear that Paul is talking about the office of deacons and the qualifications for being a deacon. And we really don't have enough information from these verses in chapter 16 um, to make it clear, or to see clearly that Paul is talking about the office uh, as opposed to her broad identity as a servant of Christ, which is the more common use of it. So the philosophy of Bible translation here favors the broad interpretation, the, the broad translation, which can be further clarified as opposed to using the narrow translation, which might be inaccurate. Now, all that being said, this does not mean that Phoebe didn't definitively, definitively serve as a deacon in her church in Sencre. The, the office of deacon had already been established, and her credentials and praise from Paul certainly appear to qualify her. And this is not like a positional thing. We at Mercy House believe women can be deacons. But the text is vague because Paul is vague. And I think Paul is vague on purpose. He could have clarified, but he did not. 
The role and the title is irrelevant in this case. And, and what's held up is the familial bond in Christ as the main thing that he uses to introduce her. He says in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. In verse 2, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. I think this shows us that if she were a deacon, that position is not one that you would use to flex or that you would use as a credential. But it also shows us that maybe we all ought to strive to serve Christ and serve our church in such a way where outsiders and perhaps even insiders, to the outsiders and to the insiders, it's a little bit unclear whether we're official servants or just servants. We had the pleasure and joy of commissioning Keith Benoit a couple of weeks ago as a deacon here at Mercy House. And yeah, okay. And when I mentioned that to someone here at Mercy House, one of the things I heard was, I thought he was already a deacon. <laughs> That's exactly my point, is that the first deacons who were installed in Acts chapter 6 weren't chosen to be trained to be a deacon. They were identified as people who were already capable of filling that role. Now, that's a bit of a digression, but I think one that is important. So to summarize, single women served the church in meaningful, substantial ways. Phoebe was probably a deacon, but we should all serve the Lord and others in a way where it's unclear whether we have an official title or not. So let's move on to our third observation. Married women play a vital role in the church. Look at verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. One of my favorite couples in the Bible is this couple right here, Priscilla or Prisca sometimes, as, as you see the shortened version, and her husband, Aquila. That, they're mentioned six times in the Bible, and they're never mentioned by themselves. They're always mentioned in tandem together. And we read about this power couple first in uh, Acts chapter 18. And I highly recommend you bookmark that, you read that later. In that chapter, you see Paul meeting them in Corinth for the first time. It says that he stayed with them because uh, they shared the same trade. So Paul and Aquila were both tent makers, and so they bonded over that. They probably did some work together in that. And the three of them become really close ministry partners uh, and even closer friends. And they travel together to Ephesus to plant and establish the church there. And then you read this pretty cool text, Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 through 26 says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you've got this Jewish man. He's a great orator. He knows his Bible. But when Priscilla and Aquila hear him preach, they recognize that he's got some theological deficiencies. He's, he's teaching accurately about Jesus, but there's something about his understanding of the gospel, the whole picture of redemption that is incomplete. So what do they do? They pull him aside. They have him over. 
They explain the gospel more fully to him. They teach him. They train him up. And then we know, as you read more of the Bible, that Apollos goes on to be one of the most powerful preachers of the gospel in the first century church, being compared to the heavy-hitting Peter and even Paul in 1 Corinthians. Now, why is it important to see this married woman engaged in kingdom ministry like this? Because in the same way that you, as a woman, your spiritual significance does not begin when you get married and have children. Your spiritual significance does also not go away when you get married or have children. All you married people know that the transition between single life and married life is abrupt, to say the least. Like, there are challenges that come with being in a covenant with another person when you're committing daily to die to yourself and to love and serve that other person, to figuring out basic things like having a schedule and, and when you're not just accountable to yourself or making plans exclusively for yourself. Like, your decisions start mattering to another person in a way that they never have before. And for many of us, you begin having a whole new perspective on just how selfish and sinful you actually are as a person. Marriage is good, so don't get me wrong. I love being married to my wife, Caitlin. It is a blessing. But in speaking about how singleness is better than marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is very blunt about the added responsibilities that come with marriage. He calls these worldly troubles that come when one gets married. But despite this, it doesn't mean that married people, especially married women, have somehow, are, now, are somehow now disqualified from ministry. And here's Priscilla and Aquila, a great example of a married couple serving the church, making disciples together. They journey with Paul. They host a house church in, the home, in their home. They leverage their resources, their gifts, their time. They risk their lives. Married women served God and the church in crucial, powerful ways in Rome. So to my sisters who are married... Be encouraged to serve God and the church in crucial, powerful ways that the Lord has ordained you to serve. If you are already, which I know many of you are, keep fulfilling the calling that the Lord has on your, on your life this season. Here's an exhortation to the husbands in the room. Are we taking time to think about how we can lead our wives to grow in using their gifts? Are we being mindful of creating space and opportunities for our wives to serve the Lord and to serve the church? Are we giving them the encouragement to do so? And if we haven't already, let's take the time to initiate the conversation and we can ask our wives, they're probably already thinking about this, but maybe asking them, hey, are there ways that you feel the Lord is calling you to serve Him and to serve the church. And then if there is, let us die to ourselves as husbands and do whatever we can to then make that happen so that our wives can live out their calling and so that the kingdom can be blessed by them. Single women play a vital role in the church. Married women play a vital role in the church. And my last observation this morning, which is fitting for the day, is that mothers play a vital role in the church. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. 
Here we have a small sliver of a verse referring to the nameless nurturing of a mother which had profound ramifications in the early church. I want to close this morning by giving all of you moms two encouragements from this short verse. And the first is that the Lord sees you. He sees you. Can you imagine the smile on Rufus's mom's face when this letter was read out loud? Like, can you imagine the encouragement it would have been to be acknowledged and affirmed? It's not about the fame or the accolades. I doubt that's what Rufus's, what Rufus's mother wanted, and it's not what she gets because her name is not included. Her blessing is between her, Paul, and the Lord. It's like this little side loving encouragement that's just slipped in there. It's a simple acknowledgement that her labor, her, her toil, her love was not in vain. The, the work uh, of a mother is usually not in sight. It's usually not up front or on stage. It's often in the background or in the back, literally. I often see moms chasing their children around the hospitality area. I often see moms bouncing their babies by the sound booth in the back. And side note, like dads help in that as well, so it shouldn't just be the moms, but that's usually what I see from my vantage point. If nothing else, I hope that this tiny little nod to Rufus's mother reminds you mothers that you are seen, that your effort and your toiling and your sacrifices are not lost on our Father. All the times that you have lost sleep over your children, all the times that you have wept over your children, every time that you've been brought to the end of your rope or backed to the edge of extreme anxiety or thrown into the depths of depression or left in the quietness of your loneliness, all the while serving and caring for your children, you are seen. You are seen. And not only are you seen, but you are cherished and loved by God and God is near. You are not insignificant in the kingdom of God. Your work is not insignificant in the kingdom of God. But my final encouragement for my sisters who are mothers this morning is that you have been especially equipped to do something as a mother that is incredibly profound for both your family and for the church. Rufus's mom gets a nod in the Bible. For what? We don't know exactly, but look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. What does it mean when Paul says that Rufus's mom was a mother to him as well? Quick survey of the Bible in asking what do biblical mothers do. Here's a few things. They love compassionately. That's Titus 2.4. They are available anytime, morning, night, and day, providing counsel and advice in the word of the Lord and how to follow God, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. They raise younger people up in their strengths and their giftings, Proverbs 22, 6. They discipline, they reprove, they correct those under their care. That's Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. They patiently endure, they build others up, Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, and they model godly living with integrity in their, in their own lives, Proverbs 10, 9. Yes, any woman can do these things. Single woman, 
can do these. Married women with no kids can do these things. And I, of course, want to encourage all of our women to do all of these things. But to the moms in the room, you have been tested in these things. You have gone through trial and have grown in these areas because it's what has been asked of you as a mother. And so you are especially equipped to do all of these profoundly powerful things for your spiritual family. And Lord knows we need it. Paul is a grown man. He is an apostle. He is a church planter. He is an evangelist extraordinaire. He is tough as nails. You couldn't kill him with a handful of rocks. But he was still blessed and ministered to by a mom. And God agreed with Paul's experience of it and his appreciation for it. And here we are reading about it in the Bible. So if the Apostle Paul was blessed by the care of a mother, what does that say about all of these youngins here at Mercy House? Many of whom who are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from their mothers. Some of us have non-Christian moms who can't minister to our needs, or broken relationships with our moms, or no mom at all. We all need the special, loving, maternal care that God has equipped you moms to dispense. And so you moms play a vital role in the church today, and we are so thankful that you are part of this family. I want to do something we've never done before. I want to invite all the moms up, and I want to pray for you guys. So if you have ever birthed a child, I want you to come up to the front or adopted a child I want you to come up. So, yes, thank you for that clarification. Come on up. We got some moms in the house. Look at this. Come on up. Don't be shy. Let's go. You know what's wild? We have babies in arms. We have babies in wombs. On the stage? Yeah. Wait, I'm not throwing. Yeah, people know. Okay. <laughs> Whew, that was scary. These are some of the moms in our community, and I just want to take a minute to pray for all you moms. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for these women. God, we thank you that you have placed them here today. Some of them just visiting. Some of them have been here for a long time. But Father, I pray this morning that they would be especially encouraged. I pray that your eyes would be felt as they are upon your daughters. God, thank you for the many ways that they have poured themselves out in loving sacrifice for your glory and for the good of their children and their families. God, give them the strength to endure. God, I pray that in their times of hard parenting, in the seasons of quietness or loneliness or anxiety or frustration and anger. Lord, I pray that you would be so felt in your presence near them, God. And I pray that you would give them strength to be faithful to what you've called them to, God. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their weak knees, that you'd make straight their paths, that you would show them how to best love their children um, and raise them all up, Lord, to know you and to be able to worship you, God. That's the greatest gift that you can give these women, our children who know you and love you, God. And so we pray that you would bless them with that gift. 
God, we thank you for them. We pray that you would especially encourage them today. I pray that those around them would help them feel honored and loved and appreciated for your glory, God. We love you so much. We thank you for these women. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, moms. That's awesome. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new cup in my, in, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The constant selfless sacrifice of our mothers points to the ultimate selfless sacrifice of Christ. That's what we remember each time we take communion. It's also what we can remember this Mother's Day. So thank you, moms, for being a picture for us of God's radical love for his children. As we take communion this morning, let's thank God for our moms, for the love and the care that the Lord has shown us through them. If there uh, truly isn't much there to thank God for, or we don't have moms to thank God for, let's take time to look to him as the ultimate father, which all earthly parents point toward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the women in your church. God, thank you for our sisters in Christ. Thank you that through them, we get to see and experience a side of you that we would not had you not created them. God, thank you for how well and how fully the women in our church serve you, God, how they are hard workers like these women we see in the Bible. Thank you for how you have used single women, how you've used married women, how you've used mothers to nurture and encourage and build up your church through the generations. And help us today to honor the moms in our lives, God. Help us to remind them that they are seen, that they are loved, that they are appreciated. Help us to be thankful for their sacrifice. Help us, God, to bless them. And God, we thank you that you are our ultimate parent. In heaven, God, when we are spending eternity with you, we won't have husbands or wives. We won't have mothers and fathers like we know it now. But that will be fully fulfilled in your complete and perfect fatherhood. And so, God, we will all relate to you as your children, and we will all relate to one another as brothers and sisters. And until then, help us to fulfill the roles that you've called us to for your glory, God, and for the good of ourselves and for those around us. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.